Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here at Commonway, and it is so good to be together uh, this week. I'm so grateful for each of you uh, for being a part of our worship service today. Um, we are in week three of our Christmas series, um, God With Us. Three weeks so far, um, and three stories, including today, of a visitation by an angel. Two weeks ago, Lisa talked about uh, Joseph, that in a dream, an angel told him that Mary's pregnancy uh, was from God. And last week, Gus talked about Mary uh, when the angel Gabriel visited her uh, to tell her that she would become pregnant by the Holy Spirit with the actual Son of God. Uh, and now, Zechariah and Gabriel. Zechariah is the father of John the Baptist. If you are paying any uh, close attention at all, you may notice something that we've done. Uh, it's a bit strange. We've told these stories backwards. Uh, chronologically, the angel visited Zechariah first, and then Mary, and then Joseph. And I wish I could tell you there was some grand plan or pastoral wisdom behind this, but it was completely done by accident. Um, now, we did pick these three stories on purpose to tell how God revealed his grand plan for those few individuals um, in an insignificant colony of Rome as he brought uh, to earth his son. So in Luke chapter 1, we find the story before the Christmas story. Uh, this is Luke's way of preparing our hearts and minds for the birth of Jesus, the Messiah. So we'll begin in Luke 1, 5. I invite you to turn there or pull it up on your phone um, as we begin. Uh, in the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron, and both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. So Luke is setting the stage. Zechariah and Elizabeth, they're righteous. They're a devout couple, committed to following God. Uh, not to mention that he's a priest, which is just bonus points. Um, and this bit about Abijah and Aaron that Luke mentions, um, it's all to say that they have the right ancestors, um, which only increases their status and respect. Uh, but this is a culture where childless women were mocked and ridiculed. Um, not fairly at all, but the, their family and neighbors would have felt sympathy for Zechariah. How unfortunate for him uh, to marry a woman who is barren. Uh, as we continue... In verse 8, once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. So Zechariah is going about his life. He's doing the tasks that his job requires. And when it's his turn as a priest, he travels to Jerusalem to serve in the temple. Um, the idea is that he'll put in some time and then return home for life to go on as normal. But this time, as we read, he's chosen to go into the Holy of Holies 
alone to burn incense. It's part of the ritual. It's his duty. But then something extraordinary happens. Uh, Verse 11, Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. That seems like the appropriate response. Uh, Verse 13, But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. And he is never to take wine or other fermented drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. The angel said, your prayer has been heard. So they've been praying, probably for a long time, probably with a hope that has slowly dissipated as the years went by. Because when do you stop praying? When do you stop asking God to intervene? Apparently for them, not yet. Zechariah and Elizabeth, they knew the stories of the Old Testament. Abraham was 100 and his wife Sarah was 90 when their first son Isaac was born. And so we have evidence here of some hope and some faith that maybe, just maybe, we'll pray and God will answer us like he's done for others before. And yet, Zechariah asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years. And this, this is the turning point of the whole story. Zechariah asks an important question. It's the question that people have been asking throughout history. Maybe not with those exact words. How can I um, be sure of this? Adam and Eve asked it, Moses asked it, the disciples asked it, and you've asked it. Are you sure, God? This doesn't make any sense. Am I hearing you correctly? I don't understand how this could be true. But look at how Gabriel responds. Then the angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you And to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens. Because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Now, I don't think that this was necessarily a punishment. I mean, this seems to me like God's mercy. Perhaps even a severe mercy. In your doubt, Zechariah, let me offer you this. A sign A reassurance that I am in this. This is my plan for you and Elizabeth. It's a physical, miraculous demonstration 
And of course, every time Zechariah wants to say something, he'll be reminded. I've chosen you. I've called you. Your prayer has been heard. Uh, But meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. Uh, When he came out, he could not speak to them. And they realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. And incidentally, this is the first recorded game of charades in all of human history. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. And after this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. So I think we can assume that a few things happened between Zechariah and Elizabeth when he returned home. I mean, it's safe to say that he found a way to tell her the story of the angel in the temple. He probably wrote it down for her. Um, I think it's more than safe to say that something happened between them for Elizabeth to become pregnant. Um, I'll say it this way. Many times, God does not expect us to be passive participants in his plan and calling for our lives. That we're called to be active co-conspirators. So now we skip over the part where Gabriel visits Mary, uh, and the story picks up right right at John's birth. Uh, So in verse 57, when it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. So there's a couple things here happening that might be strange to us. Um, Mostly, who are these people that think they're going to name this baby? Um, But it's a different culture. It's a different time. And so the natural assumption was that like most everyone else, they'd name their firstborn son after after the father, Zechariah. Uh, But his mother spoke up and said, no, he is to be called John. And they said to her, there was no one among your relatives who has that name, as if she was unaware of that fact. Uh, Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. Uh, He asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue set free, and he began to speak, praising God. And all the neighbors were filled with awe. And throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, What then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. That seems like an understatement. I mean, old parents, a priest made mute, and then the sudden healing when he confirms the name as John. Of course, the news spread. Of course, they wondered what would become of this baby. Uh, What in the world, though, does this story have to do with Christmas? I mean, we see that at his birth, already filled with the Holy Spirit, that John is already fulfilling his purpose and calling. I mean, time after time in Scripture... 
God has used miraculous births to signal to his people to sit up, to take notice, uh, to look closely, and prepare themselves for something significant. So John's calling is to be the one that prepares the way for Jesus. His job is to prepare the soil, to warn the Jewish people that something big is coming and they had better get ready. There are a few things, three things actually, uh, to be specific, that I want to look at from this story. Uh, the first one is this idea of hope. It's an anticipation. It's an insistence that life is more than we can see or understand in the present. You know, as followers of Jesus, uh, we have this hope that stretches into eternity, this promise of eternal life with Jesus. And that hope stretches back into our lives now. Um, and so we have this hope that God will meet us in the present, regardless of life's circumstances. Um, second, what we see from this story is this idea of faith. You know, it's a confidence that God is God and I'm not. It's a quiet assurance that comes from remembering that I can only see what I see and that my understanding is limited. No matter what life may bring, I can trust that God always has my back. And then thirdly, we see this idea of the calling of God on our lives. What is God asking us to do? Who has he created us to be? I mean, God creates each of us with our own personality our own uh, talents, our own intellect. And along with that, he creates a calling, a purpose for our lives, a way for each of us to live for him and for the kingdom. So I'd say that ultimately our calling is to become the person God has created us to be and to do the things that he has designed us to do. You know, if you're talking to a little kid, you know, first grader, and you ask him what he wants to be when he grows up, uh, in Indiana, the most common answer is NBA star. Um, and you don't shoot those dreams down for a six-year-old, even if he's the shortest one in the class and his dad is 5'2". You just let him figure it out on his own. <laughs> um, I asked my daughter, she's Ella, she's eight, recently what she wants to be when she grows up, and her answer was a rock star. And you know, if you know Ella, it's possible. Um, but if she's still saying that at 22 and she's never touched a guitar, I imagine the conversation might be a bit different. Uh, but here's the thing, though. When Ella says uh, that she wants to be a rock star, I know that she's identifying something about who she is and the way that God has wired her. Now, I think that as adults, I think we lose so much of our ability uh, to dream, to hope for the future. You know, we're often too practical or even jaded. We've experienced the harsh realities of living. And then to make matters worse, I think we actually call it wisdom when we stuff down our desires and our hopes. I think even within the church, even within this church, that many of us function with a low-grade 
numbing despair or a hopelessness. I mean, even if you'd say that life is good or even good enough, we tend to ignore those deeper things that stir within. You know, because life doesn't always go the way that we want, and that's not going to change, right? I mean, we'll continue to experience pain, heartache, loss, and disappointment. People that we love will get sick. Uh, Relationships will end. And we'll pray, and we'll ask God to intervene. And in some of those cases, perhaps many of them, uh, he doesn't seem to respond the way that we want him to. And we don't like that. I mean, if you're like me, I kind of find it insulting. God, why can't you just give it to me straight? Why can't you respond every time I pray? Even if the answer is no, can you just tell me? But God's ways are higher than ours. His wisdom, his plan, his purposes are beyond our comprehension much of the time. How could we ever expect to know what God knows, to see what he sees? And yet, he invites us to hope. I'd say he even invites us to dream. And that may mean that we have to kneel before him in submission. No, no, no. That will mean that we have to kneel before him in submission, to wait on him, perhaps for a long time. And perhaps, although I'm tempted to say again, most likely, God will ask us at some point to set aside our own hopes, to allow room for his plan and his purpose. You know, the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth, we see in that an invitation to hope. It's an insistence that life is more than we can see or understand right now. We don't really know how old they were. 2,000 years ago, people were considered old at a much earlier age. Uh, They might have been 35. Really. Uh, They could have been 65. I just want to point out, for the record, nine of those ages are old. Just so you know. Amen. Amen. You know, it doesn't really matter, though, how old they were. Really, because the point is they've been waiting. They've been pleading with God. I'm sure they've already cycled through the stages of grief. God, what do we need to do differently? What have we done wrong? And are you even listening? I'm sure they've tried to settle it in their own hearts and minds to accept it. Okay, this is our life. God is still God. He's still worthy. And I'm sure they've experienced anger at themselves, at God, at the circumstances. But therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And so we fix our eyes. Not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. When we were in Nicaragua this last week, uh, we met a lot of great people, saw a lot of good old friends that we've known from past trips. Uh, There's this one family, though, that we spent some time with. 
Uh, Marciela is the pastor of the church um, in their small community, which is called Manchonas Abajo. Uh, that's her husband, Marlon, their son, Brian, and then their little girl. Uh, this isn't the best image. I got it from uh, Google Earth. But I just want to give you an idea of the size of this community. That's all of it. Um, this is the church. Uh, this is Marcel and Marlon's house. You know, uh, it's got dirt roads, only dirt roads. No running water, limited access to clean water. Um, they have electricity, but no street lights, and so it becomes very dark at night and therefore unsafe. Um, and because of where they are, close to the equator, it's dark every night by 6 or 6.30 all year. Uh, so like for so many in Nicaragua, uh, this is a life in poverty. Uh, not only is Marciela the pastor, but she and Marlon are also community leaders, like in a, an official capacity. And they told us about their dreams, and, and that's the word that they used. In Spanish, it's los sueños. And their dreams that they shared with us um, were all for their community. To have improved access to clean water, to have streetlights, to see physical improvements uh, at the local school. And some of that's already happening. Um, we got to see a new water filtration system uh, that provides clean water for over 40 families. And you, as Common Way, um, provided the funds for that through FH. Um, for it to be built. You know, here's the thing, though. Um, there is something so powerful, deeply powerful, that happens when we see hope on display in others. Uh, FH, they're singularly focused on creating a pathway out of poverty for folks like Marciela and Marlon. And they do their work with the understanding that any physical transformation, whether it's health, livelihoods, uh, the education, that all of that creates room uh, for spiritual transformation to happen as well. Marcella and Marlon, many times, they told us how thankful, how grateful they were for FH and for Commonway. But they also expressed many times that their hope is in God, that He's the one at work. He's the one hearing their prayers. We met other families like this. We met Anhala, who through FH, and again, funds from Common Way, is able to have her own pottery business. And as you can imagine, when you're living in poverty, having any means to build income for yourself is empowering, and it's an important We also met uh, Nicholas, uh, a college student who, with the help of FH, has been able to earn income making clothes. Uh, and Jordan, another college student there with his family in front of their home, um, he's a carpenter. And FH uh, provided two small electric tools. And I know nothing about anything when it comes to electric tools. I even feel silly saying those two words together. <laughs> I know nothing about carpentry. Now, I am proud to say that when he showed us his tools, I could identify their purpose, but that's as far as it gets. But as you can imagine, having those tools allows him, along with his dad, um, to build furniture at a much faster pace. And we saw some of it. It's beautiful. Um, 
And both he and Nicholas are in high demand in their community. Uh, But this is the question that I want to ask you. What about you? Where do you need hope? You know, maybe it's a physical need, something to do with your health. Maybe it's financial or relational. Maybe it's spiritual. Uh, My guess is that it's a combination of at least two of those. Because when we experience any sort of despair or hopelessness, it tends to be multidimensional. Maybe like Zechariah and Elizabeth, you've been praying for years and years. Now, hand in hand with this, uh, with hope, is this matter of faith as well. And today, I'm not really talking about like faith with a capital F, like our Christian faith, or that all-encompassing faith um, where we believe in the existence of God. What I mean right now is that faith that allows us to believe that God cares about us as individuals deeply about the intricate details of our lives. Faith is knowing that my understanding is greatly limited and trusting that God knows all and sees all. And because of that, we can rest in him. Hebrews 11 says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. And I love verse 2. This is what the ancients were commended for including Zechariah and Elizabeth. Um, This past week again in Nicaragua, our host, our leader, um, our planner, um, her name is Diana, uh, and I heard her say over and over again as she shared with us about her own life, she would say God's ways are perfect. Um, We spent a lot of time together and we talked about a lot of things, um, including um, we asked her how did she come to work for FH. She's been there about three years. She told us about her former job, um, uh, the frustrations she encountered, the stress. Um, she didn't get along well with her boss and how much she really was hoping for something different. Her boss kept giving her these tasks um, that no one else wanted. But her attitude about that was astounding. Um, She told us, she goes, well, God has a plan and a purpose for everything. And there must be something he wants me to learn. There was even a time when she was out of work um, in the midst of COVID uh, for three months. And she said her family would ask her, what are you going to do? She said, right now, nothing. I'm going to wait. God has a plan. His ways are perfect. And in due course, she was hired at FH. Now, we only spent a week with Deanna, but I got to tell you, her passion, her heart, it's inspiring. Her gifts, her talents that she has, her personality, all make her a perfect fit for the job. God's ways are perfect. Now, I got, here's the thing, though. I, when she... F- when I first heard her say that once, it's like, all right, that sounds nice. Heard her say it again. Pretty soon I was pretty unsettled, borderline angry. Um, and I realized it's mostly because of how much my faith is lacking in this area. Because I want certainty. 
I want answers. And I, I'm baffled by this, but it's hard for me to trust God, especially with the little things. And I don't know why, because he's proved himself over and over. Um, here's what I do when I'm waiting on God, when I can't seem to hear him or discern what he's asking me to do. I get frustrated, and then I get angry, and then I get cynical, and then I start to pull away. At, at my worst, I'm not proud of this, but at my worst, um, it's like I say, I'll show you, God, if you don't want to speak to me, and I'm not going to speak to you. I got to tell you, that doesn't work out very well. Um, God doesn't change his mind just because I'm whining. Uh, and yet God is patient. God is kind. His mercies are new every morning. And God wants to build our faith in him to help us increase our ability to trust him. I mean, he's well aware that it's difficult for us to wait and to submit. Um, he isn't surprised when we're frustrated, but he will not waver. He will not deviate from his plans because those plans and purposes are perfect. I'm so grateful for Diana that God used her to remind me of his goodness, of his trustworthiness. Over the course of the week, um, just being around her, my faith increased. You know, I'm learning to accept more and more of the mysteriousness of God, that his ways, again, are higher than ours. That most of the time we can't understand how he works, but that's a good thing. That's actually the point. That God is teaching me, he's teaching you to trust him, to let him care for us as he's promised us he will. Here's where my mind goes. Why would God care about me? I'm only one of over 8 billion that are alive right now. Surely he's got more important things to attend to, like the folks in Manchana Sabaho, for example. But the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth, it reminds us that God is more than capable of guiding human history and caring for people intimately in their time of need. Zechariah and Elizabeth, yes, they were uh, devout, righteous, committed followers of God, but that doesn't mean that their faith was always strong. I'm sure they wondered if God was trustworthy, if he was even listening if he even cared about them. I mean, how could they not? I mean, we know that Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? But with the birth of John, God answered their deepest longing, filling them with an immense joy while also ushering in, preparing the way for Jesus, our Messiah, our Savior, our King, God acts on the large scale. There's plenty of examples that we know of where we can see how he has shaped history. But he is more than capable of taking care of our smaller, intimate concerns and needs as well. So again, the question is, what about you? In what ways do you need more faith 
You know, maybe it's a specific situation. You've wondered if God is hearing your prayers. Uh, maybe you're in a period of doubt. Is God good? Does he care about me? Uh, where are you demanding certainty, but God is inviting you to trust him? Because again, the plans and the purposes of God are perfect. So here's where I want to land today. Uh, the big question that I want all of us to ask, that as we think about how hope and faith work together, how they feed off of each other, that that would compel us to ask, God, what is your calling for my life? What is God asking you to do? Who has he created you to be? God's call on our lives is always consistent with who God has made us to be. Now, that doesn't mean we're always going to be willing to do what he asks. Submission and obedience will always be part of the process of discerning God's calling. For Zechariah and Elizabeth, we know that God called them both to follow him in righteousness and integrity. God called Zechariah to be a priest, a leader in the community. And God called them both to be parents, to raise a prophet. And that's no small task. And then for their son, John, a few chapters later, uh, Luke writes this about, about him. And he's quoting, as you see, uh, the prophet Isaiah from the Old Testament that these words were about him all along. A voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight and the rough ways smooth. And all people will see God's salvation. So as we look toward the birth of Jesus... You know, as we remember the stories of the shepherds, the angels, and the manger, we also remember John the Baptist, that God's calling on his life was to be the forerunner to Jesus. Um, part of the calling on my life, as I've reflected this week, is something I've probably known since I was eight years old. Through a series of events, God made it very clear to me at that age even that he was calling me to be a missionary. And that's kind of become an old-fashioned word in a lot of ways. Uh, but when I was younger, I, I just thought that meant that I would live overseas. I mean, the only missionaries I knew lived full-time in other countries. Um, and in fact, my wife Maggie and I even uh, actively considered that on a number of, a number of occasions. So it looks different than I expected. I painted one picture in my mind, and God painted another. This trip to Nicaragua last week, and the number doesn't matter, but I'll, I'll say it anyways. It was my 14th time that I've been out of the country for the purpose of being a part of seeing God's kingdom expand, to see his work of transformation. Together, the hope and faith, they say to us, I don't see the whole picture, 
but I'm going to believe that the calling you have is the best and that you will help my heart be prepared for what you are calling me to do. So let me offer these questions before we pray together in a moment. Um, Questions I've already asked this morning, but I just want to come back to them once more. Um, First of all, there's this question of where do you need hope? Where, perhaps, has a quiet despair crept in? Another question is, in what ways do you need more faith? Do you crave certainty when God is asking you, inviting you to trust Him? And I think for some of us, we just need to camp out here in one or both of these questions. That you walked in today and this is where you are. God, I need hope. Desperate, I need hope. Or Father, increase my faith. I have a little bit. Maybe. Increase my faith. But as I've learned, as our hope and faith are strengthened, I think that we become, among other things, we become more and more able to ask God these next questions. Who has God created me to be? And what is he asking me to do? It's my hope, even my, I'd say, expectation that God will speak to you even now. I mean, you don't have to be a prophet like John. Um, Chances are you don't even have to raise one. Um, But God has a calling for you. He's created you for this calling at this time and in this place. And it doesn't matter if you're 11 or 95. Uh, God's calling on your life is real. It's alive, and it's going to meet the purpose of where you are right now. So I want to invite you to stand, and I'm going to pray a short prayer, but then I'm going to pause for a moment, just a moment, and in that time, I invite you to ask God, Father, who have you created me to be? What are you calling me to do now in this time and place? And then listen. You might be surprised. Um, I don't know if you noticed, but I'm the one standing on stage and preaching this morning. And so when we got to this point, first service, my plan was just to pause and let God speak to you. And then he spoke to me specifically, exactly what I needed to hear about my calling. And so, again, my hope is, my expectation is that God will speak to you. So let's pray. Holy Father, we are grateful, so grateful that you are good, that your love is beyond our understanding. God, that you care for us intimately, moment by moment. And Father, for my friends here, my brothers and sisters, Lord, who need hope, God, my simple prayer is that you will grant them the hope that they ask for. God, that you'll speak to them, that you will shore them up, you'll encourage them. God, you'll show them your love, your care for them. And Father, for those of us who need faith, 
God, that in this moment, God, that you would help us in our unbelief, that you would build our faith in you, our confidence in who you are and who you've created us to be. And Lord, for all of us, I ask that you would speak to us now. Father, who have you created us to be? And what are you asking us to do? Father, we invite you to speak to us now. Father, we thank you. And then we thank you again and again. And Lord, I trust that um, some of us have heard from you. And whether we heard from you now or not, you're still good. You still have us. And Lord, we invite you to speak to us in this season of hope, uh, this season of celebration, the birth of your son. And it's in his name, his precious name, that we say amen. Uh, before we go today, I want to offer you a benediction. Uh, this is Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Have a great day, have a great week. Come back next time. We'll see you.